everybody and welcome to All of the Above, the podcast where we couldn't decide whether we wanted to talk about books, share stories, discuss theology, or talk about uh, philosophy of ministry, so we just decided to do All of the Above. Uh, my name is Jonathan Franklin, and I'm joined today with the venerable Trevor Hoffman. Hello, Jonathan Franklin. I'm, I'm not 100% sure what the word venerable means, but I'm um, hoping it's good. It's too close to comfort for me to Brent Venable's last name, who is the defense coordinator at Clemson, and just a difficult time for me right now to think about Clemson football and Gamecock football. So. Mm. It was a win. It was a win though this week. They did win. So that they did. There is that. Indeed, two and zero. Oh. There you go. Oklahoma Sooners are two and zero oh as well. A little skeptical in the, the first game, but we're making it. Um, so this week we are discussing a book that both of us have read fairly recently. It is titled "Being the Bad Guys." Dun dun dun. <laughs> I thought about previewing this with a reading. We have, we have this book called Mustache Baby, and it's about a baby who's born with a mustache, and it starts out as a good guy mustache, and then it becomes a bad guy mustache, and it like curls at the end, and he turns into like a train robber, and <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I thought it'd be irrelevant, but somehow I still brought it up, so. Hey, there you go. My The first question I was going to ask is, in, in theme with being the bad guys, who is your favorite superhero bad guy oh man favorite superhero bad guy man i'm gonna go with the vintage old school spider-man and say dr octopus from spider-man 2 are you stoked that he's supposed to be in the new one yeah it's gonna be fun love it love a good spider-man movie awesome i feel like well that'll be another podcast for another time we can oh yeah discuss the different iterations of (laughs) spider-man we'll have to get jacob witt back for that that's right um, I, I kind of go back and forth. I think Joker would probably be all time favorite. Just, oh yeah. But there's so many versions of him. I think the animated nineties Batman Joker voiced by Luke Skywalker. Absolutely. Yeah. Is my favorite bad guy of all time. So before we, before we get too far into superheroes <laughs> and everything else, let's actually talk about the book. Yeah. Um, so what is, what is this book about? Who, who are the bad guys that, are discussed and kind of what's going on with this book. Yeah, so the book is written by an Australian guy named Stephen McElpine. I don't actually know how I came across the book, but uh, if you know anything about Australia, you know, especially the big cities in Australia, it is an incredibly progressive culture, uh, very similar to Europe, in that it has has definitely moved to a kind of post-Christian environment. And one of the things in the book that he observes is that in Western culture, there's been really this, it's kind of been this dramatic and accelerated turn within the last 15 years or so. And, and I've heard it from a number of people who have, who have talked about this same dynamic, that Christians um, kind of find themselves being, you know, no longer in a, a culture that's hospitable to their convictions and beliefs, but one that views their convictions and beliefs, especially around uh, the, the ethics of sexuality, is, is not just weird and not just... Um, uh, I don't know, antiquated, but is positively toxic. Um, there's a guy called Aaron Wren who talks about this. He says that, he, he calls it a, uh, there's there's positive world, neutral world, and negative world, and says that, you know, in the 1950s, let's say, uh, it was a, uh, Christianity was, was a positive. It was a social positive. Like, for you to be a believer, it meant that you had access to opportunities. It meant that you had credibility that came from your, you know, belonging to a particular church, uh, he said, as you as you got to the turn of the century, kind of the 
maybe the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was sort of a neutral world where it was like kind of kind of meh. It's like you, you kind of do your thing, you know, we'll do our thing. Um, it was sort of a um, negligible fact about who you are. Uh, he said somewhere around 2014, that this is Aaron Wren talking, not the author of this book, but Aaron Wren says somewhere around 2014, we became, uh, it, it became a negative world or a negative culture where Christianity is viewed as a negative. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not an asset. I mean, it's a liability uh, these days. Again, especially around uh, the topics of sexuality and the ethics kind of surrounding that. Uh, this, is, this is what Stephen McElpain, the author of Being the Bad Guy, says. He says, only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal, and political power structures affirmed Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many, a voice to be considered but not to be followed unquestioningly. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. Most of us think that we still live in that world. Most Christian books, sermons, podcasts assume that we do. In many ways, we've only just worked out how to live as one of the guys. But the problem is, that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. And so the point that he's making in the book is that we, we kind of find ourselves as the bad guys, whether we like it or not. Uh, we're the bad guys. So that's sort of the, the idea behind the, the title of this book and, and you know, what, what, he, what he's running after is, like, what does it look like to be the bad guys? So, so what does he say or, or some of the ways, like, how did we get here? Because um, it doesn't, like, we don't feel like bad guys. Yeah, um, we don't like amongst one another. I don't. I don't feel like I'm the Joker or, or Doc Ock. <laughs> right, right. Um, but how did mustache twirling? Yeah, right, mustache twirling babies. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so how did how did we get here? How did we become, or Christians become the bad guys? Yeah. So again, he he draws on a, a thinker called Philip Reith. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read another little section from this book. I, I figure it was just better to read these sections rather than me try and poorly summarize it. So, oh, absolutely. Um, so Philip Reef, Philip Reef is an American sociologist, and he described the pre-Christian world to think like ancient Greeks and ancient Rome as first cultures. So he says, like, those first cultures were worlds where there were many competing gods. They were tribal in their allegiance. Um, they weren't evangelistic necessarily. They had their god or, or fate or whatever, and each people group and tribe worshipped the god or the, the, the deity of their particular tribe, you know, their group. Um, that was first world. Uh, and then he says we moved into the second world. He said that was largely Christianity's doing. So second world or second cultures uh, are monotheistic and evangelistic. He says, uh, this is McElpine summarizing Philip Reef. He says, Christianity broke down tribal barriers with its commitment to equality across sexes, races, and social divisions. It swept the first culture away. All right, so the, 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 the first culture is a sort of tribalistic deity. Second culture is some, some kind of deity, but it's a, it's a deity that's over all peoples. Like we talk about the Christian God being God of the nations. Uh, the problem is, is we've now moved into what is called a, a third culture. And a third culture is, uh, it, whereas first and second cultures had this similarity that there was something outside of ourselves that made moral demands on us, that there was some sort of, again, fate or a tribal deity, according to a first culture, or the Christian God, according to second cultures, we've moved into a third culture where there is, where there is no external demands that are placed upon you. Uh, uh, a third culture bases its morality and its concept of goodness on uh, 
whatever it is you feel internally sort of guiding you to your authentic truth. And so he says, now that we've moved into this kind of third world, this new religion has emerged. It's a new gospel. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a religion of being true to your most authentic self. So meaning isn't derived from living a good life that's been kind of handed down to us from the tradition of, of, our, of our forefathers. Meaning isn't derived from you know, worshiping and, and um, giving your allegiance to some sort of divinity. Uh, meaning is derived from you kind of living out whatever you think your meaning needs to be. Uh, Carl Truman, he's, he's another thinker, another author. He also summarized um, Philip Reef's work. He says that uh, the first and second worlds justify the morality by appealing to something transcendent but beyond the material world. So again, first and second worlds, that was their similarity. Uh, but third worlds, on the other hand, by way of stark contrast to the first and second world, they do not root their culture, their social order, their moral imperatives in anything sacred. He says, they do have to justify themselves, but they cannot do so on the basis of something sacred or transcendent or other or beyond us. Instead, they have to do so on the basis of themselves. So he says a, a third world, they've abandoned the notion of any kind of sacred order. And so the interdicts of the first and second world cease to have any plausibility because they lack any justification beyond themselves. And so the result is now we live in a world where we have to find our own meaning. Um, the, the sort of narrative of our day and age and, and even religion of our day and age is that your calling in life is to go find your own meaning. And those of us who live in a second world, Christians, who say that meaning comes from God and comes from living in obedience to God, we find ourselves in conflict with those who occupy the third world. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That went on, I went on way longer than I intended to, but that, that's sort of a, a way of tracing out maybe, maybe some of the bigger kind of seismic, tectonic kind of shifts that have taken place that have resulted in us kind of being on the outs culturally and, and being... And being evil, being the bad guys. Mm. Absolutely. I th- what I what I thought was interesting is he kind of talked about this this counterfeit gospel, but mm. that it's almost inheriting Christian ideals. Yeah. So there was like freedom, joy, human dignity, identity, like all of these things. Uh, excuse me. Are are fundamentally yeah. Christian, um, and, and ultimately find their like highest fulfillment. In, in within Christianity, but there's right. these counterfeit versions of it that are being offered by the, this the kingdom this with third with no king. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought I thought that was super helpful. Yeah. So he references two British guys. There's a there's a guy called Tom Holland. He's a British historian who uh, he calls himself a Christian atheist because he recognizes that a lot of his um, moral sensibilities or his moral taste buds, you might say, are Christian. It's like whether he likes it or not, they come from Christian teaching. And Douglas Murray is another guy that he mentions. He's a he's a he's a again an an, uh, an atheist journalist uh, who, who also recognizes the same thing that we're kind of in this strange place where people have taken Christian morality and kind of removed it from Christ and um, and and you know in effect have sawn off the branch that they're sitting on. Um, mm. It really is you know for all the talk of unprecedented times. I mean, it really is we we are entering into kind of a strange new world where. Um, I mean, really, for the first time in, in in thousands of years, I mean, we're we're finding ourselves as sort of the culturally marginalized people um, who who you know are the bad guys for for saying things like God created a man and woman, saying things like 
sex is reserved for the confines of, of marriage, saying things like um, heterosexuality is God's design for how human sexuality is to be expressed. And, and uh, you know, we find ourselves on the outside looking in and, and being despised for those convictions. Mm. He also makes the point that this was accelerated by technology. Mm-hmm. Um, were you about to go there? Yeah, I was just about to. Yeah. You know, social media and technology that, um, you know, these things kind of cultivate, you, you know, if the, if the point of life in a third world, I um, mean, don't think like third world is in like uh, Venezuela. That, that's, that's not what Philip Reef means when he talks about third world. He's kind of defining it differently. But, but in a third world where there's no kind of transcendent order to give meaning to our lives and, and we have to kind of muster up meaning from the ground up, he, he says that social media and technology is kind of, kind of built to just aggravate that impulse. It's, it's, it's kind of built to, uh, uh, to accelerate and kind of encourage that way of thinking about the meaning of life, if that mm. makes sense. And so you said kind of 2014 is kind of when this, when they're identifying this like third, yeah. third world shift. Um, so it's, it's all happened really quickly. And, and frankly, for, for many who've grown up kind of in this second world, um, like Christianity, it's, mm-hmm. it's surprising and, and shocking and a little and uncomfortable. Totally. Um, and what I thought, what I thought it was interesting was something he talked about frequently was like, we shouldn't be surprised. Mm by this. Yeah. Um, scripture, scripture continually promises, um, that we will suffer like Christians will suffer now, but we will find glory later. Yeah. Um, like persecution while we're not persecuted <laughs> to the extent of like the early sure. church, but sure. Um, is the norm for God's people. Yeah. Um, so while this is, while this is new, this is something that's very quickly becoming the norm. Um, it should not be uh, a surprise uh, for Christians. Um, so what do, what do we do about it now that now that we're kind of becoming the bad guys at, at even a, a swifter rate? Like, what do, what do we do? How do we as Christians respond to this cultural phenomenon? Yeah, so he, he says um, to try to be the good guys, that's, that's not an option because that would require us to shift on some of our fundamental convictions. Uh, you cannot be faithful to the Lord Jesus and occupy a third world, you know, um, we cannot change our convictions on sexuality and, and the ethics of, of Christian you know, sexuality uh, because that would be to abandon the teaching of the Bible and the teaching of Christians over the centuries. Uh, so to be a good guy, he says, would necessitate us uh, backing down on those beliefs. So he says instead he wants to encourage us to be the best bad guys that we can possibly be, which I thought was a, a, really, a really helpful way of framing essentially what 1 Peter 2.12 says, which is... Um, to a, a, let, me, let me just read it straight for us. First Peter 2.12. Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, then, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Mm. So Peter, I mean, the, the don't be surprised. I mean, Peter also says in the same letter to this same group of believers, don't be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you, because they... They came upon Jesus. You know, I think about the passage that, um, I guess when you're listening to this, I will have taught it the Sunday prior. Uh, but in Matthew 26, when Jesus is arrested in the garden and he tells his disciples, you take up the sword, you die by the sword. And you, you contrast what he says there, that the taking up with another kind of taking up that he mentions in Matthew 16 is taking up the cross. Jesus says, you're not to be people who take up the sword, you're people who take up the cross. Right? We, we follow a crucified king. And if Christ was rejected, if Christ was the bad guy, 
if Christ was rejected and, and suffered and vilified, you know, don't be surprised if those same things happen to you, the scriptures tell us. Mm. And so Peter says, there's a, there, there is a really unhelpful way, I think, to be the bad guy. Um, there, there's a way to kind of own that and say, I'm going to own the mustache twirling and basically become a troll. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if that's what, well, I can say with certainty, that is not what the author has in mind. And, and I think Peter's calling us to something different. He says we're to keep our conduct honorable. So we're to be the best bad guys we can be. We're to live honorably. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, um, there's no sticking power. Like they're, they're, your, your life is so other and compelling um, that it has a way of uh, just drying up and causing these um, assumptions about your badness to kind of evaporate. And it says... Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that may, they may see your good deeds and, and ultimately glorify God when, when Christ returns on the day of his visitation. So he really leans into that. Be the, be the best bad guys that you can be. Um, and over and over again, he repeats these three words, confident, hopeful, and joyful. You should be confident, hopeful, and joyful, even as the bad guys and even as we're being sidelined. So I thought, I thought that was really helpful. Oh yeah, and every time I, I kind of think about joy and, and suffering, and he even mentioned this in his book, I think of Acts 5, mm. um, when the apostles were, were taken before um, the council, and they'd been grilled, basically, and then they left rejoicing for the, mm. for the opportunity to suffer for the name. Yeah. Um, they, they, didn't, they weren't frustrated, they weren't deterred, they weren't... Um, mad at anyone, they left rejoicing and thanking the Lord for the opportunity to be counted worthy to, to suffer for the name. That's good. That's uh, really good. And, and how he continues to say that, that our joy is, even despite the circumstances that are going on around us, regardless of, of what uh, may happen to us for being painted as the bad guys, our joy is never in the circumstances, but mm. it's always future-focused. Mm. It's, it's always pointed to the glory that is to come. It's never uh, focused on what, what's going on right now. Yeah. So, yeah, he lays out in one of the final chapters a blueprint um, that he, he kind of gives to the church. He, he says, we are to preference God's people. And the point that he makes is we should invest ourselves deeply in the local church. He says, as Western culture is fractured into toxic tribalism, it's crucial for churches to form deep, thick communities based around more than convenience. And this will cost us. Preferencing long-term church relationships may mean foregoing lots of stuff that we want to do. But he said at the end, he wants us to consider how we can build stable, honest, and loving communities that offer significance, hope, and forgiveness to a weary world. Mm. And I think one point here is that, you know, if we're going to be the bad guys, you know, let's be the best bad guys that we can be together. You know, we need brothers and sisters who, uh, you know, are wrestling and struggling through the same things. And we need the encouragement that comes from being connected and belonging to one another. That's the first thing. The second thing is proclaiming God's praises. Uh, he's got this great line on page 103. He says, Being besotted with Jesus may bring scorn, but he is still our best asset. What if being seen as the weirdo is actually our strength? He goes on to say that there's, there's, a, there's power to just being fixated on Jesus and his gospel and make, you know, keeping the main thing the main thing, kind of being simply about Jesus that's going to mark us off as weird. But that's the thing that's going to draw people in is when they see the goodness and grace of Jesus through, through our lives and through preaching and teaching. There was, a, there was another analogy he used earlier about identifying kind of this counter, counterfeit culture, counterfeit uh-huh. gospel. 
Um, and he said the way that they used to train people to identify counterfeit bills was not by looking at the counterfeit bill, but becoming so completely familiar with the legitimate currency mm. that any time you saw something counterfeit, you automatically knew what it was. Mm. Um, so it's not it's not looking to culture to identify the problems or identifying um, what what the issues are, what this counterfeit gospel looks like, but it's becoming so completely familiar um, with Jesus and who he is and who he says he is that everything else falls away. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, so uh, be about the church, be about God's people, proclaim God's praises, you know, talk about Jesus, about how Jesus holds the future, about the hope that comes from Jesus, about the joy of forgiveness. And the last thing is promote God's promises. And he speaks specifically about the future glory that awaits us, our resurrection. Um, and he says that we can, we offer hope, you know, in a world that's uh, where everything is imminent, where there's this, um, uh, we feel kind of trapped in the box because we're living in a third world, right? And there, there's no sense of the transcendent, that the Christian story offers a, offers a, a transcendent vision of the future that that Jesus will return and he will he will fix everything and that Jesus is going to deliver a, a happy ending. Um, so we should be about um, promoting those promises, uh, proclaiming those promises. And he says that we can we can live confident, hopeful, joyful lives even as the bad guys because we know that we will be vindicated in the end. That Christ will vindicate his people. He will he will remove their scorn is a phrase that the prophets use over and over again. Um, remove their scorn. Um, and he will resurrect us, and, and we will live with joy with Christ forever and ever. And so that gives us strength to press forward, even in spite of the, the difficulty of this kind of new situation that we find ourselves within. Praise the Lord. Um, so do you have any final encouragements from the book? What are some things that kind of stuck with you moving forward? Yeah. yeah. I, think the, I think the thing that was probably most helpful was, was the words from First Peter where he says, don't be surprised that this is happening. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we are, we are studying about the crucified king. And how many times does Jesus tell his disciples, like, look, my fate is your fate. Um, you got you to gotta pass through suffering to get to glory. That's, just, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the cruciform shape of the Christian life. Um, and so I, I think that there is um, encouragement in knowing that this is not uh, some sort of though, though it's though it's new to us and though it's surprising to us, this is not some kind of you know novel development. You know mm-hmm. this is, in a way, what it's always meant to be God's people. Um, and so I, I did find that encouraging and kind of emboldening. You know, as I think about being the church and being God's people, uh, you know, here in Greer, twenty twenty one and beyond. Awesome. I, I pulled out this quote. It was from the from the very beginning, but it kind of stuck with me throughout. Um, it says, "But our hope is not in winning a culture war." Our hope is in the one who has defeated our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and who has given us his victory. We will waste a lot of emotional and actual energy if we don't cling to this truth. Mm, so like, at the end of the day, whatever happens, um, if, if we become more of a bad guy um, and a culture war rages on, um, our victory is secured yeah, um, through, through Christ on the cross. Like We, we don't have to to worry about being portrayed as the bad guy or as a neutral guy or even as the good guy. Yeah. Um, our victory is secure. Hmm. Um, and then lastly, and this kind of moves forward into like evangelism and, and going out, but our culture, he says, our culture has rarely been more hostile towards the gospel 
but at the same time, it has rarely been more open either. Mm. Um, so now, now is not the time. Now that we're being pinned as bad guys, now is not the time to put our heads down and mm. kind of ride out the wave. Um, now's the time to, to go out and make God's glory known even more. Yeah, that's really good. There, uh, there's more things I want to say about that, but we can do a future episode because that's, <laughs> that's really good. Awesome. Well, we will go ahead and in the here, I'm sure we could talk about <laughs> superheroes, yeah. evangelism, and all sorts of other things for hours and hours. Yeah, um, well, let me, let me say again, the book is called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't by Stephen McElpine. Um, really helpful book. Um, if anything about this conversation has, has struck a chord with you, I would encourage you to read it. It's pretty short, you know, super readable. Um, even has a chapter there at the end that he directs specifically to being the bad guys in the workplace, um, which I think is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So um, if this is an encouragement to you, please check out that book and, and go pick it up You know, wherever, wherever you get your books. Absolutely. Highly recommended. Five out of five stars. <laughs> no doubt. Well, we look forward to talking with you next month. Have a great day.